1: Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Anita Malik, Democratic nominee for Congress in Arizona's Sixth. Thanks for coming on.
2: Yes, thanks for having me. Very excited to chat.
1: Yeah, it's our pleasure. So Anita, for starters, could you tell us about your background and what pushed you to run for Congress?
2: Yeah, so I have been in the tech industry here in Arizona. I grew up in the district that I'm trying to represent. And you know, I've done everything in tech, everything from starting off as a programmer, I was a business analyst, moved up the ranks, and got into management. And most recently, I was the COO of a tech company. But I also have a background in journalism. Halfway in the middle there, I decided to go and get a a masters in journalism when um, newspapers were facing the internet and not knowing how to handle that and what was going to happen to journalism. So it's been an interesting road, and you know I've loved what I've done, really being at the forefront of content technology, digital marketing. But what I was noticing in this country is that the idea of the American dream something that my father came here for, both my parents did, and that really loved and really bought into that notion that you can create something if you work hard and you can do better for your children than you've been able to do for yourself. I think that's what most parents dream is and wishes. And that's kind of the focus uh, of this American dream. And he did that. He was successful in that. But, you know, being in this day and age in the I would say what I call the future of work that is already here. (laughs) So it's a misnomer a bit. Realizing that that dream is slipping away is really what got me into running and deciding that somebody needs to step up in a district like mine that tends to go unchallenged. And I had to do it for my kids.
1: So you are challenging an incumbent. I'm curious as to what motivated you to do so. What is your incumbent not doing that you want to do?
2: To me, the idea of representation means that you represent, that you are there for the people. It is not about, leadership should not be about seeking consensus. And we've seen that too often now in our politics, which is, this is my way and that's just how it's going to be because you voted for me and now it's my voice. No, it's about building consensus, about working with people and truly representing them. And the incumbent I'm running against, David Schweikert, does not show up for his district. He doesn't hold town halls. He's not available um, you know, he'll say he does small coffees with with people, but it's with donors primarily until he's campaigning. And that's not acceptable to anyone in this district and certainly wasn't for me. You know, I live in the district. I'm raising my family here. I grew up here. That is a one big issue. And then for me, you know, a top line issue I have is campaign finance reform. And he has been bought by the healthcare industry corporations, the NRA. I mean, the list goes on. And To be bought means you are beholden to those special interests and not to the people of your district. So to me, that was why this race was so important.
1: And what are you doing to avoid corporate interests?
2: Well, first and foremost, I'm not taking any corporate PAC money. I think that that is an easy line to draw to say that, you know, I don't need that money to to influence me, to be the fuel behind a win. It's a hard line to draw in the sense of this campaigns are very expensive. Um And so there's a, a mentality that, you know, you need the most money to win. And the person that gets there is the one that will ultimately prevail. But I think that we're in a time now where, The grassroots effort makes such a difference. And so I've been able to say no from day one. I reject corporate PAC money and, you know, have kept the messaging, the strategy, everything about this campaign very localized, not about D.C., not about what's happening elsewhere, because I think that in a lot of ways, that is where you can get caught up in a system of undue influence.
1: And what issues do you consider most pertinent to your local community, and how would you hope to address them in the house?
2: Yeah, so there are a couple issues here that I think are affecting across the country but in in our community, and one is education um you know we have a public school crisis here in Arizona and to you know ensure you know federal funding for education is not uh, it's a state issue and so that that's something i can't affect as, as much but obviously i can can champion our public schools at the federal level and you know i'm a big proponent on early education something i would like to work on and really making sure that we have universal pre-k that's where it starts for our kids and that's what's so important and too many families are spending too much up to 30% of their income on some basically just daycare, not even some type of pre-K program. And we need our students to be ready to thrive. And it starts at that young age. And then also looking at education, higher education and college debt and making sure we can refinance that debt like we do any other financial instrument and getting to a point which is economically feasible in this country to make community college and trade programs accessible and free. Uh, Those are things that are very important in this district. And then on top of education, it's healthcare. You know, we are seeing a dismantling of healthcare in this country with no real solution. And that's the conversation that we're really hearing on the ground is people are afraid, afraid of losing their pre-existing conditions. Uh, coverage, afraid of not being able to afford the premiums because they're skyrocketing. And so for me, it's important that we talk about solutions to healthcare. We talk about not this constant bickering and divide, but we actually do something and bring progress back to healthcare.
1: Could you tell us a little bit more about what healthcare system you believe in?
2: Sure. I believe in a Medicare for all type system. Um, What I'm concerned about and what I've spoken about for the last year is that as we try to move there, you know, and I am a proponent of being bold. um, But as we try to move there and as we look at what's happening politically in this country, I'm concerned we're not going to get anywhere in the next two years. That concerns me because I don't think the American people or the people of Arizona should wait two years, another two years, um, and be in this fear and this burden of worry that we have today. So what I propose is working with the ACA to fix some of those gaps, fix what I call, like we say in the tech industry, the bugs in the system, to get us closer to a universal care system that really works for everyone that is, that is Medicare for all. And I think you can do that. I think you can, while we politically wait for the moment that we can achieve that, we can start to cover more people every day, reduce the costs. There's work to be done on that front. And so it's important to me that we start as soon as we can. And and it's, it's scary to me that we've let our politics in this country go this far without covering more people.
0: I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us.
3: And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown.
0: Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show.
1: Looking at some other issues that you noted on your site, you covered marijuana and criminal justice. Could you tell us a little bit more about the relevancy in your district and your state?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's an issue everywhere, really. You know, and one of my big concerns is medical marijuana and having that alternative. You know, the opioid crisis is something that has struck this community just as many others uh, across the country. And to not have those alternatives um, be legal is a big concern and something that we could fix. And then, uh, you know, tied in with criminal justice, the the way we're handling this is, you know, this is, this is definitely certain populations, unfortunately, uh, minority groups that are it's a It's a pipeline basically for our prison industry, so to me they're all tied together It's something that's a very big concern here in Arizona, the private prison industry, making sure that you know we're not putting people away for things that are these minor offenses that really should should be legal and shouldn't be an issue so um yeah, it's something that we talk about quite a bit in the context of really what is right for people you know again, it goes back to me for me to the idea of. The American Dream and, and being able to—people make mistakes, right? And something we don't do in criminal justice in this country is rehabilitate enough. Our focus is on punishment, and punishment is important, um, but it needs to move beyond that. And that—that's a, a big concern here, um, that we're we're punishing people and we're holding certain people down in our underserved communities because it's something that is for profit. And that's not okay.
1: And do you believe in expunging the records of people convicted for marijuana charges?
2: Yeah, I believe in yes. I mean, I think that if we or moving it to a, a civil offense, or if something we can do like that. But yeah, I don't think that it is something that people need to have on their record, unless there was criminal activity involved in that as well.
1: Are you familiar with the recent nationwide prison strike?
2: Yes, a little bit. Could
1: you tell us what your thoughts on the prison strike were and your understanding of the conditions that necessitated such a widespread strike?
2: Understanding that, again, it's this idea that we're focused on punishment. We're we're not focused on... um, Really, you know, the right kind of treatment. you know here in Arizona, we've had some push at the state level, the local level, um, legislation to make sure women are treated okay um, in our prison system, that they're given enough access to to um, menstrual materials that we need, um, and that they're given that kind of thing. So it's something that I think is important that we raise awareness to the brutality that's happening. Um, in our prison system, to focus on, but um, to focus on, on retraining and reassessing how these these prisons are operated, um, it's a concern because to me, there's so much of a storyline that stems into what's happening with immigrants in this country. Um, it, it reaches beyond and kind of this this notion of a lack of accountability almost.
1: Could you expand a little bit on how this is connected to immigration and the treatment of immigrants?
2: I have said time and time again, when people want to attack, particularly Democrats, for saying, well, if you care about that, you're weak on border security, right? That you don't care about that. And then I live in Arizona. I believe in strong borders. But to me, what happened there was racism. Um, this is plain and simple. We are treating people inhumanely. And I don't think that there is a cause for that, particularly in, in that situation when they're coming here for asylum or for whatever reason. I mean, the reason shouldn't matter. Your rights are protected under the Constitution. And so to me, like I said, there's this this idea that Seeped into this country in so many of these areas that is very, very concerning of hate and of it 's just not american i don 't know how else to say it then it's just it is not the spirit of who we are, and it has become very, very hateful. So I'd
1: like to dig a bit into the racialized history of immigration policy all the way back to 1882 when the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed. I bring this up because the Chinese Exclusion Act is what criminalized undocumented status and established deportation and detention under federal jurisdiction. Even though neither detention nor deportation is mentioned in the Constitution, I'd like to read a quick passage from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in the Yu Ting case, in which a majority on the Supreme Court validated the Chinese Exclusion Act. The quote is in regards to the constitutionality of deportation. Quote, It involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment and oftentimes the most cruel and severe, end quote. What are your thoughts on this dissent against the Chinese Exclusion
2: Act? I think it's... But where we are today um i think that not a lot has changed in kind of the mentality of the other you know we've made progress in this country with that over the years um but you know we continue to fall back onto that that lesson And that is what's happening to our immigrants today. The idea that we're stripping them away from what they know. I mean, the majority of immigrants without status, with illegal status, if we have to say that word, and I don't like to use it, um, here in this country, you know, have been here around a decade. And like you just said in that descent, they have families here, they have businesses here, they have a community, and they don't know any different in a lot of cases, particularly the kids. And so that's, it's something that concerns me. And then you even look at people with status, with green cards. And what we've done with uh, that part of immigration is we're continually trying to attack immigrants from a whole. And we're putting immigrants on this path that has no end. The green card backlog in this country, you know, is over 100 years in many cases, which means you're not going to see that. But yeah, these are people that again have communities here have businesses are paying taxes have families have kids born here and don't know anything else and there's a constant fear and threat currently under this administration that a lot of those people you know we could change the classification of a visa we could send people home people are living in limbo and we're using this as a tool to punish to set examples it's a it's a race issue and it's unfortunate it's um a stronger word for unfortunate probably, but I'm trying to be <laughs> nice about it. It is it's a it's a very scary time to be in. But yeah, we, we still have a lot of learning to do from our history.
1: And what proposals do you have to rectify this racist history, to deal with this racist history and ensure that we bring an end to it?
2: You know, I, it's not a one shot proposal and it can't be. This is part of this is as people who we are and that we have a nature to focus on differences rather than common ground. And so I think the best thing that we can do is vote in people that, A, the first step would be vote in people that show a diverse America, that reflect a diverse America. Um, that can have the conversation about what's happening, and that can impact our policy across the board, you know, not just with immigration, but with everything, because this is seeping into every issue, um, which is the part of the reason I think that so many people are, are really, A, disgusted with what's happening in this country, but also just, you know, embarrassed and, and alarmed by it. Voting people in, um, again, that reflect that diversity, being more inclusive is is a great step, but for me, these policies need to come from listening to the communities. They need we need to look at how we can uplift and raise up our underserved communities rather than putting them down. And that is economic policy, where we can invest in these communities um, with zero interest loans to give people an opportunity to start a business. Where we can, you know, start to make sure that the idea of wealth for the top is not our only focus when it comes to what Congress. Is doing. And I think that the tax cuts were, were something that did only that. And I think a lot of our environmental policies are something that are only focused on that economic gain for the top percent, 1%. So again, leveling out where every community, it doesn't matter what your race is, it doesn't matter what the background is, and it doesn't matter what the income of that area is, has the ability to thrive, has clean air, has clean water, has good public schools,
1: and should we have a system where people are not targeted upon race or papers, immigration status? We currently have a lot of spending on what is known as immigration enforcement, which is enforcing the practices established by the Fong Yu Yuting case. What, what would you want to see the federal government doing with immigration? What would be a responsible use that is no longer targeting people of color based on their documentation status?
2: You know, I think one, again, depends on kind of looking at the difference of status. Um, But I think we need to look at first everybody that's already here. Look at the economic gain of keeping them with no status or giving them status. And there's an economic gain for us. Um, It's better for our communities at the local level And I would like to see that conversation happen in a very aggressive way. I think that we talk about it with dreamers, which is something I support that we get them a clean path to citizenship. But I also support their parents and their families being put on the path as well, because ripping people from their families is not the way to make this work and, but beyond the dreamers, I think we need to to look at other people, you know, criminal records aside, again, most of these people have been living here for a long time and have been contributing to the, to their communities. So that's one thing I would love to see happen and something I would, you know, lend my voice to is very important to me, Um, you know, but then looking at our process of how we let people in, having clear accountable rules and and processes of, of what that means, you know, And I'm open to looking at where why are people risking their lives to come in and and what is what they're seeing? And, you know, maybe putting that penalty back on some of the businesses is something that, you know, has been discussed. Um, It's something I'm still kind of looking at because I think you have to be careful um, with also crippling the economy. I think that there's two sides to this of letting people I mean, all economic models will tell you we need immigration, so it's it's what we need to, to, to make our economy grow and to make our country strong. And so there has to be balances and levers in place for both sides. But it's important that the punishment is not that we're going to send people away and that we're not looking at people just because of the color of their skin.
1: Given what you said there, do you support separating immigration from Homeland Security?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that right now, our enforcement of immigration, you know, we have different agencies, which is something people often forget, but we need to make sure that we have more accountability. So yes, I think that if it's under the judicial branch, there's a little bit more structure that we can weed the two apart. Yes, I don't think that Homeland Security and immigration um, need to to be paired together. You know, there are some places where they intersect, of course, but it is not it has, it's just not the best way to be to viewing the problem or or the solution. Really, I think we should be focused on the solution.
1: So I think you were alluding to this: the situations that force people to migrate in the first place. I'm curious to get your perspective on foreign relations specifically in this case the ways in which the united states has intervened in democratic elections and overthrown leaders who who don't necessarily align with capitalist interests
2: yeah you know i think that we as a country have definitely made mistakes and that what is important that we learn from those mistakes i believe in peace building as my as the number one role is what we should have in in, in the global um, environment and so to we we have to look at where we can be kind of that third party voice into peace building and not be overtaking it and what I mean by that is where do we assist? how do we pro- you know promote democracy throughout the world? How do we do that where we can give the help that is needed to make these things happen, but without overtaking and without also saying putting too much of our stock in it it needs to be really that we're supporting and I think a lot of times we go in and and we take over, which is you know. In some cases, if there's a a human rights crisis could be okay. But, you know, generally speaking, I think that we overextend in places and, and it can sometimes just cause problems with our allies as well. And, you know, we have to be good partners. I think right now I'm most concerned about how we're just not good partners with the rest of the world.
1: I'm sure you're aware of the bloated military budget and how much is spent on our military versus these domestic issues we've talked about. What are your thoughts on cutting military spending, making it more efficient, and focusing on both diplomacy and domestic issues like healthcare and education? How do you want to handle that in terms of appropriations bills?
2: Yeah, I think our defense spending needs to match what we do for education and we need to ensure that. I I am a big supporter of our military. We need to have strong defense. But at some point, there's diminishing returns when you're talking about, you know, weapons and more and more you know, fighter jets and things like that. It, it, we have to look at where that money is really going. I think that's been the concern for a lot of people is is where is that money going? And do we really need it? But meanwhile, you know, we we can support the military with, again, making it strong, protecting those that have served, do more for our veterans, look at cybersecurity. I mean, we're putting in so much money in physical defense, but what about that? And so I think that needs to be, the money needs to be looked at, reallocated, making sure that we're really doing what's right um, for our security as a whole. You know, there's the argument that I make that, you know, part of our national security and security that we should look at is the environment. And so where's that money coming from too? So we need to, to make sure that, that um, we're matching those funds.
0: I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us.
3: And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown.
0: Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show.
1: One of the biggest events, uh, if, if you can call it, in the past month has been the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Can I get your thoughts on that?
2: I think what most struck me, you know, we obviously looking at his history, his past votes, um, not something that I would see as very comforting for women's rights um, as we go forward. Not something that I would support if I were there and had that choice. Um but what struck me probably the most during the hearings was really his um, the idea that this is the highest you know judicial position in the land, and that it shouldn't be a a political position, right? It should have that neutrality um as all judges should, and to hear his comments to see him be you know, so easily agitated to talk about Democrats, to have to make it a party line issue. That was concerning to me, um, because I think that we have all seen what's happened in this country over the last two years of this kind con- this divide and this moment of we can't get anything done because there's so much if, if one side does one thing, then the other side has to be against it. That is not what that branch of government is supposed to be about it's not supposed to be about for any of us but you know there's there's room there for us to debate right but that's not supposed to be there and that's concerning and i think in terms of um dr ford the i think what everybody just wanted was a fair trial and a fair investigation into that and it's hurtful to me mostly as a woman just to see women and all women not just her vilified just for speaking their story and that showed again at the highest Levels of our government, um that kind of hate and that kind of vilification of women was very, very disturbing
1: and do you believe dr. Ford?
2: I do believe her, Yes, I think that I don't know that she would have a reason to to put that upon herself um, to go through that what she went through um, you know there's people definitely argue all different ways. it was high school, this and that, but it doesn't make it less true even if it was high school, so I think that um you know I believe her, I think they Things are traumatic um, to all people that experience assault of any type. And her composure and her ability to, to stand up for everyone was very important to see.
1: And do you think that in the hearing, Brett Kavanaugh perjured himself?
2: Um, I don't know. I don't have a, a good assessment on that. Again, I'm not, I don't have, um, I think he could have easily said. Things differently, <laughs> put it that way. Um, I think that he decided to take the stance of almost not human, right? Almost not this is like people make mistakes, but of what kind of nature, and maybe something happened, but I don't remember. I mean, there could have been a lot of ways that that could have been handled. So I, I'm, I don't know. I wouldn't say for sure on that. It's a good question.
1: Some Democrats have proposed doing an actual investigation into Dr. Ford's testimony. Is this something you would support?
2: I would support that. I think, again, she came forward to speak her truth. And I think as this is the country, um, that we part of our democracy, and it's about law, then we should follow that. And we should find the, look for the evidence and hear people's stories. So yeah, I would support that.
1: Should the conclusion be that Brett Kavanaugh did indeed perjure himself, what do you think the appropriate next step would be?
2: Well, yeah, I'm, <laughs> that would be interesting. Um, I think then we need to look at, at what we do with that, with that position, with that seat. I mean, that can't be okay. You can't be, again, at the highest court of the land and have committed perjury. That's not okay. Um, we would have to, to go through that process. Which I know is pretty much with our constitution a, a difficult one to do. So that's, that's what the, that's why I'm like, uh, what do we do? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't have that, that background in that type of law of, of our government to, to know what the step would be. But, you know, I think something would have to be done.
1: And lastly, what can our listeners do to get involved in your campaign? And where can they find you online?
2: Yeah, so they can find the campaign at Anita4Arizona, F-O-R, Arizona.com. And, you know, getting involved really is the biggest thing we need right now with so close to the election is having helping us have that conversation. We can't reach everybody ourselves. And so People can make phone calls from anywhere in the country. Um, If you're here in Arizona, you can obviously come help us knock on doors. And, you know, there's ways to spread the message. Social media, of course, is a big one. So even if you're, I know three people in, in your district in Arizona, we'd love for you to spread that message.
1: Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. We wish you the best of luck on the campaign and hope to have you on again after you win in November.
2: Thank you so much, Jordan. Thanks. Yes, of course.
1: Now, lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.